Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza, and I'm here with Sam Dolby, speaking with Sumaya Kasimali about her research. Sumaya Kasimali is a postdoctoral fellow at the Mahindra Humanities Center at Harvard University. She received her PhD in anthropology from Columbia University in 2017. Sumaya, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Shireen. Thanks. Um, nice to be here. Can you introduce our listeners to the general subject of your work? Yeah, so I did my fieldwork in Beirut, and just to lay out the demographics in Lebanon, it's quite interesting because Lebanon is a really small country um, population-wise, but it has a huge role in the region of the Levant and broadly the region that we call the Middle East. So general estimates, even though there hasn't been a proper census, but the general estimates tend to be about 4.2 million citizens in Lebanon together with... At this point, around 1 million Syrian refugees, the numbers changed. Its peak was about 1.5 million in 2015, and then after the large exodus to Europe, specifically Germany, those numbers came down a little bit, but again, it's a little unclear. And then around 300,000 Palestinian refugees. Um, Again, numbers are highly contentious when it comes to the non-citizen populations. And migrant workers, at least half a million, so these are... African and Asian migrant workers, especially women. So again, the number that NGOs give are 250,000 domestic workers who are full-time live-in domestic workers, women who live primarily in the homes of their employers, which means about one out of four Lebanese families employ a woman who lives with them full-time. So, I mean, this is a staggering number, very, very high. Together with that, you have a number of men that work in the sanitation and janitorial services, a number of other contexts. Construction and agriculture in Lebanon tend to be Syrian men and women also. So demographics are a little bit difficult, but you can at least get the sense that the proportion of non-citizens is very high in the country, and that leads to a pretty complex and interesting um, social landscape, I would say. So I did my research mostly with women who arrived to the country as domestic workers. The primary countries of origin are Sri Lanka, Ethiopia, Nepal, the Philippines, and Bangladesh, as well as an increasing number from Francophone West Africa, a little bit of English-speaking East Africa. So many of these women arrive as domestic workers and then escape conditions of abuse and enter the informal labor market. So they're undocumented. They work in hotels, restaurants, hair salons, nail salons, Um, cafes, they clean homes on part-time bases, but basically all over Beirut you can see either women in the uniform, it's a kind of pastel striped uniform that has become ubiquitous, you see it, women cleaning balconies on these high-rise buildings, you see women running errands on the streets, and uh, over the last decade Beirut has really transformed as many of these women have entered the social fabric of the city, started opening up businesses, and specifically gathered around a neighborhood called Daura, or Daura together with the adjacent neighborhoods, um, Ras al-Naba and Burj Hamoud, Burj Hamoud being the historic Armenian neighborhood that's quite known. So I met a number of these women, and my research ended up being primarily on how the city has transformed with the presence of many of these women who in the last two to five years have started connecting with, through intimate and business partnerships, a number of single male Syrian refugees. So it's a really interesting time to be in Beirut, to be seeing um, a, a kind of social transformation that's happening on the one hand, but also to try and understand 
with such a huge demographic presence, how do we understand the position of the migrant worker in Beirut? So in urban Lebanon, again, I, I think it's important because first of all, Beirut in some sense is metonymic of Lebanon as a whole. Half of the country's population lives there. All of its primary financial um, power rests in the city. And it's such a important city for understanding Mediterranean history, understanding that part of the Levant um, it's an old port city. It has all this cosmopolitan. It has a strong cosmopolitan heritage, plus the civil war. So all of these layers come together, I think, and make it a very interesting site for anthropological study. And yet, somehow, despite the fact that you've had hundreds of thousands of um, migrant workers there since the 1990s, over these decades of increase in growth and presence, there really hasn't been an accounting of what would it mean to imagine the city from the perspective of one of these women? So Sumaya, as you alluded to, Lebanon historically has been, has had so many layers of migration, uh, people leaving in the late 19th and early 20th century to go to places like West Africa, Brazil, Boston, uh, people coming back, um, Armenians in Burj Hamoud, um, Palestinians, more recently, Syrian refugees. One of the things you say in your dissertation is you're really trying to grapple with this question of what it, what does it mean to be a subject of the study of, of the Middle East or of Lebanon? And what do you mean by that? I would say that one of the methodological commitments of my dissertation was to try and think through the question of who is the normative anthropological subject of the area that we call the Middle East or sometimes the Arab world and to ask that in a context of such significant demographic changes. So for example, I mean, we all know that the Gulf countries have a huge proportion of migrant workers, but the problem that I have with a lot of the literature and also just the imagination of the category migrant worker is that it assumes in the category a kind of permanent temporariness and a permanent foreignness. And the women that I met, no matter how long they had been in the country and i'm talking about women some of whom had been there for 20 years they had married they had children there mm. and others who had been there for a lot shorter but you know they're learning arabic they're finding all forms of ways of navigating the city they have their favorite places to hang out it was clear that it's impossible to collapse the richness and the depth of life into the category migrant worker. And I think that there is a kind of discriminatory undertone to the assumption that when we talk about the Middle East, we assume predominantly an Arab subject. And then every so often that's complicated through the category of the minority. So the Armenian, the Kurds being famous minorities of the region, especially coming out of um, Ottoman studies. Or we talk about, you know, sectarianism in Lebanon obviously is another major trope. So we talk about religious difference. Let's say the Copts in Egypt, the Christian versus Muslims in Lebanon versus Syria. Or we talk about national identities, so the Palestinian refugees. And in Lebanon, like I mentioned, the question of the non-citizen Arab refugee is a primary context through which uh, the line between dominant and marginalized subject is drawn. And... Nowhere in that discussion, I think, is there room for us to say that when we think of the city of Beirut or when we think of the Gulf, especially, um, how might we imagine an Ethiopian woman as a fully participating subject of that place? And if we force ourselves to start from there, 
what does that then force us to think about Beirut as a city um, and the kinds of lives it enables and also makes kind of violently impossible? Mm. This is an incredibly rich and layered cityscape that you're painting for us. Um, in your work, what kinds of words or frameworks do you use to understand a more inclusive subjecthood of people in Beirut? So there's a chunk of my dissertation that is titled The City of Exiles. And again, it's a concept that I'm still thinking through because often when I present it, people are concerned that exile, which I draw from Edward Said, as well as people that have written around that concept um, and in, in conversation with Said, there's a concern that it is primarily an elitist subject category and it prioritizes the solitary individual critic with a distance from the mass. I actually think that one of the things Said allows us to do by theorizing exile through the question of Palestine is to take exile out of the bourgeois tradition in which it can be located in the Western canon and allow us to think of it as a mass phenomenon. And again, in Lebanon, because of the large presence of Palestinian refugees, it's a contentious argument, I think, to suggest that the migrant workers are also living in exile. But I'll explain why I'm attached to that concept for Beirut. So when I, I did part of my fieldwork in the neighborhood called Daura, which is currently the center of migrant worker activity in the city. And the group of people I met there was truly incredible. So for example, there was a cafe that I spent a lot of time at. It was run by an Ethiopian woman who was married to a Lebanese Armenian man and separated from him, but they're still in conversation and communication and they have two teenage daughters. And she has Lebanese citizenship out of this marriage. So she was able to open a cafe herself because you can't open a business without either a business partnership with a citizen or being a citizen yourself. And in most other cases, it's virtually impossible for migrants to get Lebanese citizenship or not even virtually. Not even virtually. There is absolutely no path to citizenship other than women marrying men, uh, marrying male Lebanese citizens, that is. So... She runs a small cafe and the primary demographic of people that hang out there every single day, seven days a week, before and after work, are young, undocumented Ethiopian women that live and work in the neighborhood in a kind of triangle around that neighborhood and young Kurdish men, Syrian Kurdish men, who some of them have been in Lebanon for some years and the majority of them came after the war started. Many of these individuals have started dating, so you have partnerships, sometimes marriages between the usually undocumented Syrian Kurds. They Some of them have UNHCR documents, but that's not the same as having legal status in Lebanon. After 2015, Lebanon Im implemented new visa requirements for Syrians that are also, uh, in some sense, part of the kafala system, but the specificities are different than African and Asian migrant workers. So you have these young men and you have a group of Ethiopian women who, like I said, they all arrive as domestic workers. They escape. About 98% of employers of domestic workers confiscate passports upon arrival. You can see this. I spent some time at the airport in the area where domestic workers are quote-unquote welcomed or picked up and the officers of the government of general security hand the passport directly over to the employer. This is an illegal practice, but it's widely, widely practiced. It's almost um, without exception. So when the women escape, they don't have their passport. They are also legally tied to their employers. So as soon as they escape, they are open for detention and deportation. So 
it's this group of young men and women but then you also have a whole crew of social outcasts that kind of gather around this cafe you have some lebanese businessmen a lot of the migrant worker underground relies upon lebanese men who are sort of big men and authorities they have money they have access they have wasta they're the person you call let's say if your friend is detained and you're trying to get her out so she doesn't get deported or if somebody hasn't been paid wages and you need somebody with some kind of social authority to threaten their employer and get the wages out of them um let's say you're trying to employ your sister because she's in Ethiopia and she wants to join you. These Lebanese men, they tend to, you know, be figures of authority. A lot of these Lebanese men are married to migrant worker women also. So you see, in fact, I would say the primary access to this world comes through the women, um, comes through a complex set of intimate and financial transactions between these men and women that sometimes get described as sex work, sometimes get described as marriage and definitely blur those lines often. You also have, I met this one woman who is an elder Lebanese woman who, her name was Shireen and she, her family had died. It was unclear whether they had died in the 2006 Israeli bombing of Lebanon or whether they had left her. The stories were quite complicated, but she was kind of abandoned and she lived off of pension She had an apartment in that neighborhood that was just across the street from the cafe, but it didn't have electricity, it didn't have water. And her only social world was this group of Ethiopian women and Kurdish men. And she kind of would come, she would smoke their cigarettes, they would give her free beer. And so for me, thinking about these spaces in the form of exile was a lot more potent than trying to understand it through categories that I think are inadequate and that are given by the state. So the legal administrative categories of citizen, non-citizen, migrant worker, refugee. Um, There's something about the texture of life and especially the possibility of intimacy that I think these categories don't allow us to understand. So on the one hand, migrant workers are stuck in a position of liminality in some ways that that's we were familiar with from the case of so many people who are in other places refugees uh, exiles if you want to call them that um, but on the other hand you're you're uncovering the possibility of of these structural conditions um, and I'm, I'm also you know you use the word intimacy uh, this is about love in some ways and, and ways of how exile, of course, it's a solitary experience in some ways, but it's about this collective group that's created in the process. Yeah, and I think that in my research and even in my own ongoing attempts to grapple with this world and all the people who I met who you know were so incredibly generous in welcoming me, There is an irresolvable tension between the extent of love, solidarity, friendship, and intimacy that allows these spaces to flourish and a kind of togetherness that I think is particular to Beirut, Hmm. which is not to say it's impossible in other contexts, even in the Middle East, but has something to do with a much longer tradition in Beirut as a port city, something that we could also generalize to other kinds of diasporic spaces and other kinds of cities, but the way in which a mixture of corruption, money, and urban possibility, I would even say urban diversity in Beirut allows these kinds of spaces to flourish, I don't think the same thing could be possible in any other context 
at the same time, I don't want to underestimate the immense violences that also structure these spaces. So again, many of these women and men are undocumented and they are subject to not just constant um, surveillance and the possibility of detention and deportation, but a daily level of harassment and racism on the streets of Lebanon that, for example, when I would, you know, when I would walk around in Beirut on your average day, I was quite able to grab a taxi on my own and I didn't, while male harassment is a pervasive condition, it wasn't something that I felt as a ambiguously presenting person in that context in terms of I could have been read as Arab or foreign, but it wasn't always clear and I wasn't the target of racial insults. But when I would walk down the street with friends who were Ethiopian or Sri Lankan, we would immediately get very abusive kinds of comments thrown in our direction that would refer to either the possibility that we work together as sex workers that often would say things like, welcome to Lebanon, but in a satirical sense, or where are you from? What are you doing here? Or would use the term black or Sri Lankan or specifically Sri Lankia, which is a term that we can talk about maybe at some point, but which is a generic term that has come to be used for migrant domestic worker in Beirut, which is to say that even though it means female Sri Lankan in Arabic, it can be used to refer to any woman who is read as a domestic worker. Can you actually pause and unpack this term right now? The first country of origin of domestic workers to arrive to Lebanon is Sri Lanka. And this has to do with what's happening politically in Sri Lanka at the time when women are leaving en masse and going to other countries as domestic workers. But also the fact that the earliest kind of Lebanese entrepreneurs that actually start during the Civil War, the earliest date that I was able to find in the secondary literature is 1973, but which is when it's in fact before the start of the Civil War, but the numbers really start increasing in the early 1990s after the end of the Civil War when large numbers of women are coming from Sri Lanka. So today the Sri Lankan women tend to be the eldest. They Many of them are in their 40s. Many of them, in fact, send their daughters or their nieces. So they work for some decades. They go back and they send their children to continue working for the same family. Others are married and have brought their husbands, sponsored their husbands and their children. So the Sri Lankan demographic, in some sense, is the most settled. But that's also led to the sedimentation of this category of Sri Lankan women. So there is this popular joke that says, where is your Sri Lankia from? Which is interesting for me specifically because it means that what has happened is there is an abstract category that has entered into discourse in this place where the term Sri Lankan woman can be fully separated from its content, its explicit content, which is the country of Sri Lanka, a kind of national identification, and yet is laden with a economic, social, and ethnic or racialized and gendered set of associations. So, I mean, I always say that if there's any case to be made for intersectional analysis, this is it. The music is by The Overseas Ensemble, a collaboration between composer Paid Franca and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan musicians who came together while working in Beirut.
This joke seems to be told by and in the voice of an, a Lebanese citizen. Um, I'm wondering about how nationality and other categories of identity figure into the communities in exile of these migrant workers. Yeah, that's a really good question because one of the other difficulties with choosing migrant worker communities as a subject of fieldwork and of analysis and to think with and alongside is that the communities themselves tend to be quite divided so that in Daura, even this neighborhood that is the gathering spot, there tends to be specific establishments that are associated with countries of origin. And, you know, this is a linguistic, ethnic, religious, but primarily national divide. So it's much more common to have Christian and Muslim Ethiopians together, including Ethiopians that speak Amharic versus speak Tigrinya or Oromo, the other languages. They will still gather and know each other even outside of um, churches or bars or weekend hangout spots. They're still more likely to be connected than with Sri Lankan women or Filipina women. Um, one of the things that's happened in Beirut is that you have small neighborhoods that have now been described as Little Manila, for example, or you'll have an apartment building or a complex of apartment buildings where it's known that there are a large number of Bangladeshi men and women living there. Maybe on Sundays, somebody will have home-cooked food that they'll sell on the street or there'll be an impromptu gathering if the weather's nice to sit outside. So these kinds of clusters, I would say, that are, again, primarily determined by linguistic and national origin are popping up around around the city and one of the most amazing things that has happened alongside is you have the growing politicization of a very small percentage but a very visible I would say community of migrant workers so Lebanon is home to the region's first domestic workers union it was launched in January 2015 and it Technically, it's illegal for foreigners to unionize. So a small union in Lebanon called Fenasol chose to collaborate with and to kind of take them under for the sake of legal association. But at the same time, you have a number of collectives and a really large growing number of self-organized groups of women um, doing all sorts of things. So for example, I was in Beirut in the over Christmas break and I learned of groups of women that had gathered under various names to support women who were undocumented and in shelters. So many of the embassies, which are notorious for providing almost no services, sometimes being even more detrimental than helpful, many of them w have places that serve as shelters because when women escape, they often don't know where to go. So currently, or when I was last in Beirut, there were a group of 25 Ethiopian women that were staying at the Ethiopian embassy, and it was unclear when they were going to get papers to go back home, and the conditions were l almost deplorable the way they were described to me. And so groups of Ethiopian women on the outside had gathered, and they were holding fundraisers, they were collecting clothes, they were on a rotating schedule to go visit these women to take various forms of, uh, you know, necessities to them. So as more and more women are fleeing and are not just undocumented, but have the Arabic skills and the urban knowledge needed to navigate Beirut, as well as certain connections, you know, they know a police guy on the corner that's maybe somewhat sympathetic and that they can squeeze something out of some information or they have whatsapp groups that tell them where the latest checkpoints are so you know what road not to take in case 
you need to get somewhere and you're worried about a, a, a sudden military checkpoint or a police checkpoint. So these forms of self-organization are really flourishing as, as most listeners would probably expect. They're highly made possible by cell phone technology and WhatsApp, this kind of thing. On the one hand, you have the division of these communities in ways that are depoliticizing and immobilizing. Also, I would say because of exhaustion. So I remember when I was doing my fieldwork, I once met a group of Filipino women and it was a little bit before the May Day March. And for the last few years, May Day has become a major mobilizing event for migrant workers' rights, which has been really beautiful to see. And I asked them if they were going to attend the march and they were like, look, it's Sunday is my only day off and I just want to sleep. There's no way I'm going to a march. You know, I spend Sunday watching TV in bed and eating chicken. It seems like a, there's a way that the term Sri Lankia is deployed as this totalizing force. And then there's a response that in some ways is about the collective, right? The banners at the May Day Parade were not slaves. Um, but then there are also these divisions within within the organization of these groups absolutely i would say that one of the arguments i try and make in my research is that in order for us to think about the experience of being a migrant worker or the social phenomenon of migrant labor in beirut we have to understand that there is a distinct subject category what i say marks a distinct socioeconomic relation that is particular to the experience of being a migrant worker and for being a domestic worker you know, a specific social, economic, and gendered relation. So I'll give a couple examples to explain why I think this is an important thing to understand. On the one hand, as mentioned, you have very large non-citizen populations in Lebanon. And like I said, socially, in the texture of everyday life, you are often in spaces where Syrian refugees are in the same physical places and spaces as former domestic workers or as Ethiopian women, Filipino women, etc. Many of them coupled, and it's not just Syrian men, I should clarify, it's also Egyptian men, working class Lebanese men, and now there's a growing community of Sudanese refugees who mostly came as refugees and not through the kafala system, but who are again in these mixed spaces. So the kafala system, which is the migrant worker sponsorship system that is a general name its legal specificities differ from country to country but it's used to refer to the countries of the gulf the gcc and jordan and lebanon in the levant and it's generally understood as a kind of one-to-one -one relationship between sponsoring an individual migrant worker and having a citizen sponsor in the country or a proxy meaning a business can sponsor a larger number more than one um, in Lebanon, you have the presence of recruitment agencies who serve as mediators. So if you're a family, you usually don't individually sponsor a woman from Sri Lanka. You're going to go to a recruitment agency and they will have large tentacles in different countries through which they recruit women and bring women. But the thing that's distinct about the sponsorship system compared to countries, including the U.S. and Canada, that have temporary work visas is the extent to which state responsibility is transferred onto the citizen proxy. So a very, very large amount of responsibility for financial, medical, um, and basic provisions of this worker and their status in the country, their survival in the country in some sense, is taken away from the state and given to the kafil, the sponsor. So that's what makes the system distinct. And in some sense, that's generally why it's described as having an 
high propensity for exploitation and abuse. So I think it's important to insist on the difference between how one experiences the violence of the state and the violence of citizenry in Lebanon if you are, let's say, a Syrian man versus an Ethiopian woman. And so while you have this joint presence in in everyday social relations, you still have a distinct legal and you know, just experiential relationship to Lebanon if you are a native Arabic speaker or if you're not, and if you're racialized as foreign, which is to say non-Arab, that's how I'm defining the, the line between foreign and citizen or self in this context. I should also add that because of the history of the Palestinian refugee community and specifically the creation of refugee camps, there are far fewer Palestinian men and women in the spaces that I did my fieldwork, and Again, that's a historic specificity. At the same time, within at least uh, Shatila, the, pa- the Palestinian camp and the surrounding area of Sabra, you now have a very large number of migrant workers who live there. Part of that is because rent is very cheap, there's limited state intervention, and um, the nature of these and I should say this is particular to Sabra and Shatila because after the massacres, there was a way in which the it was described to me as the camp lost some of its distinctive Palestinian identity as compared to the other camps. So in the aftermath of those losses, there was a, I would say, disintegration of the structure and cohesiveness of that area. And now, if you go to Sabra Market on Sundays, for example, there are a couple different Bangladeshi stalls. Or if you go to one of the small... Palestinian women run restaurants or cafes in the neighborhood or in the in the camp and the surrounding area it's very very common to see a South Asian woman that will be cleaning the floor or will be chopping the vegetables but certainly won't be cooking so the hierarchy that is visible in other parts of Beirut I would argue is also replicated in the interior spaces of that camp it's not the same in some of the other camps just to clarify and I want to give one more example about why it's important to insist on the specificity of the migrant worker as a subject category. So for example, there's a story of a AUB professor who is a South Asian man and he has American citizenship who was running down a popular street and he was stopped by a group of men and he didn't speak Arabic but it turned out that they were interrogating him and asking him why he was running and they had assumed that he was a migrant worker and eventually somebody came and you know, translated and explained. And once the explanation was offered, they were apologetic. But this is one of the things that happens in Lebanon is that the reason why there's clearly a process of racialization in place is that another friend of mine who's also a South Asian woman and was also a professor at AUB would sometimes be mistaken as a domestic worker simply because of the color of her skin and the texture of her hair, perhaps when she was in public places. And to clarify, not only by people who we would call racist citizens, but also by other migrant workers. I remember she once told me a really compelling story of how she was somewhere where she pulled out her passport to show identification, and a woman who was a domestic worker came up to her and asked her in kind of insistent tones, how did you get your passport? How is it that you have your passport on you? And so 
the possibility of mistake and the question of passing is always on the table and that's why i think the question of race is also an important one to at least think through at the same time class is such a co-present category that as soon as somebody realizes that in fact you're not labor in this way but you are a professor or you're an american the immediate response is apology and the insistence of the apology which happens frequently and and which i encountered in a lot of stories like this is i think really telling of how the experience of being a migrant worker is highly tied to an assumption that those who are marked as labor it's okay to treat them in particularly horrifying ways when you were planning this project and you were kind of thinking about where to interview migrant workers in which settings, um, I'm curious as to why uh, you decided to work with migrant workers who had escaped the home environment rather than, say, interviewing people who were in the domestic setting, including their employers. So primarily the answer to that is about access in that the women that I met first, I met at a cafe where I was working in a restaurant kitchen and they were mostly Ethiopian women. There were also a number of Syrian men working in that space. And so it was a privilege for me to get to share a space in which I worked with my hands alongside these people. And I think that made a big difference just in terms of positionality and understanding And these were all women who had escaped. And in some sense, that's how I first became aware of the extent of this phenomenon in the country and how I was introduced to the spaces where people hung out after hours. At the same time, it became really important for me to work outside of the home, I would say for two reasons. So number one, I think the question of domestic labor in the country comes up against a methodological limit of anthropology because there is a way in which for me to be inside a home would radically alter the setting and would make it impossible for me to actually see what was happening. So there are a number of NGOs that have done a very large number of reports on the kafala system and the experience of domestic labor and they involve both interviews with women who work and with primarily women who are employers, who are the social category or the name in Lebanon is the madame. And I find this rather offensive, but it's usually uh, it's usually said without any qualifier, as if it's just a, a normal thing, the madame. And there are highly documented stories of abuse, but I don't think that Anthropologically, it would make sense for me to try and conduct fieldwork inside a home because that would irrevocably alter the scenario. So I would, on the one hand, it would be impossible for me to claim any kind of authentic experience or even observational experience that would have any relationship to how these women are treated in the absence of a third person who is obviously observing and paying attention to what's happening. So on the one hand, I think that's a methodological limit. And then on the other hand, I ethically and politically was really committed to only speaking to migrant workers and that's not because I don't think there are things to learn from employers but because within the limited amount of scholarship and primarily policy reporting on this issue and solid journalism there is an abundance of employer voices and I just think that in trying to center an extremely marginalized perspective it was important for me to really only speak to them. Um, I recognize, and this is something that I'm often uh, 
challenged on when I present my work, but I'm committed to it for this project. I don't think that means there's nothing to be learned, but I do think I wanted my first understanding of migrant labor in Lebanon to come from women who had experienced and who had fled. And I really want to insist on the fact that this is a carceral logic. The experience of being a domestic worker in Lebanon is one that was constantly described to me as imprisonment, um, both in the explicit word of prison being used as metaphor and as experience, but also in this, uh, this binary between inside outside. So in some sense, domestic workers' entire experience of being in Lebanon as a country is bifurcated between a kind of intense inside, which is the experience of being trapped inside the home, and an outside, so that even when they're undocumented, they're navigating checkpoints, they could be detained, they are constantly harassed, they could be deported at any point. There's something, people would say, you know, I can breathe, nefes. there's a way in which a radical transformation has occurred after running away, and that's why people run away. I mean, I think it's really important to insist upon the courage and the bid for freedom that is encapsulated in the experience of running away. There is a kind of flight. There is a, a, a need to go outside. And again, to clarify, many of these women are not allowed to leave the home. You have stories that range from a kind of intensity of imprisonment where somebody will describe that when her employers would leave the house they would lock the door behind her they would tie her hands and they would also lock the fridge so to just kind of think about that for a moment and and you can see why it's very common for a comparison to be made to slavery versus to be able to walk around the street on your own and to be able to wear clothes that you choose to wear. Um, these are stories that people would constantly return to when they would describe to me what it's like being outside. Uh, somebody even said to me, you know, I was a different person. She said, you know me now, you think I'm strong. You th and I mean, the women that I met were incredible in their strength and just in their in their courage and their street smarts, the way in which they, they every single day they would describe finding new path to new paths to walk from home to work based on where they thought the cops were gonna be. A kind of creative, ingenious, innovative um, daily exercise verse and, and she said, you know, when I was inside I was like a shrunken version of myself. You wouldn't even recognize me then. Samaya, so very few of our projects um end up being what we thought they would be. And I know that you initially intended to work on something very different when you began your research and um, you moved around. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that process. And I mean, it strikes me that you're talking about what the subject should be for the Middle East. And in a lot of ways, you kind of shifted from you know, maybe other topics in, in the anthropology of the Middle East the anthropology of Islam or, or whatever. Um, there's a kind of, I, I don't know, I mean, obviously very different stakes, but there's a kind of flight involved there too. Yeah, I'll try not to get too much into a very long kind of circulatory personal story, but I'll say two things. One is that when I first applied to the PhD, I wanted to work on Iraq and I had come out of a many years of political activism in Canada, specifically being mobilized first around the sanctions and then after 9-11, of course, around the Iraq war, like many of us. And 
politically I was really committed to trying to conduct anthropology in Iraq because for obvious reasons there's essentially very very little next to none and I really wanted to spend some time in Iraq and so I conducted a few preliminary trips there and they were quite difficult and I wasn't able to complete that project but during one of my trips I was staying in the home of a man named Adnan and uh, he was a former prisoner under Saddam and he had been tortured and he himself was in Iran at the time so while I was there it was his mother who was a kind of elder matriarch of the household and a young Bangladeshi domestic worker named Rahima and she didn't speak much Arabic and my Iraqi Arabic was also very weak and we were communicating through a mixture of gesture and drawings on napkins and this kind of thing but in my time there she told me the story of how she hadn't been paid for quite some time how the man Adnan had been sexually soliciting her how they wouldn't allow her to call her family and she had basically hidden a second sim card and she was extremely unhappy there and she would constantly fight with the women she hated the food it was extremely hot in Iraq she was just generally very unhappy and I had not gone to Iraq to work on domestic workers I didn't even know that it was such a present phenomenon in Iraq at the time I was more aware of it in other parts of the region and um, I, I my research project was actually about the pilgrimage economy after the fall of Saddam and also about the transformation of a series of rituals surrounding death in the context of war. So in some sense, I've always been interested in specifically urban social transformation in the context of modern violence. And But at the time, I thought I was going to approach it through the angle of Islam and ritual. But I tell this story because there was a way in which my own ability to have a conversation with Rahima as complicated and difficult as it was stuck with me and I opened my dissertation with her story and I do think it became it's I didn't actively think about it until much later but I do think it became submerged somewhere inside me that you know sometimes we're looking in the wrong places and the second thing I would say related to that is as somebody who's from a South Asian Muslim background, not Arab, but has forms of cultural insideness, perhaps we could say there was a way in which my own many years of traveling to and studying Arabic in the Middle East, I think made me more aware to a kind of, to the question of specifically racialization and migrant labor in the region. I think in Beirut, generally, there is an awareness that the degrees of racism and discrimination against migrant labor are something that people are constantly uncomfortable with but in some sense there's a seemingly impossible chasm between moving around as a subject who regardless of personal privilege lives in Lebanon in a way that's completely excluded from the worlds of migrant workers and I was very grateful for the kind of access I got and I and I think that because a group of Ethiopian women decided to trust me there was a way in which I was accountable to that trust and needed to try and find a way to think through these stories. Sumaya, just one more question for you. Uh, where are you taking this project next? One of the things that I have been struggling with is there isn't a lot of historical work on the kafala system in Lebanon specifically and its relationship to the Gulf connection and the post-civil war economy. So 
in the Gulf countries, the story that's usually told is two things. Number one, after or in the context of the oil boom and large infrastructural projects, you have a large number of primarily South Asian men that are brought to work on these projects, on development projects. So they're primarily in the construction industry. You do also have domestic labor as a major phenomenon, but the origin story as far as I understand it, is often tied to the oil boom and infrastructure, as well as a second phenomenon which is less discussed but equally important, which is the politicization of Arab workers in the region um, through a mixture of things, struggling for labor rights in solidarity with Palestine, um, especially after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. In that era, let's say between the 60s to the 80s, you have the expulsion of many of these Arab workers who are making demands on the Gulf countries. And at the same time, you have the institution of a highly elite form of citizenship in the Gulf where you're getting access to massive amounts of benefits through the, again, the oil money. And um, a very, very large number of people who simply have no access to any of the benefits of citizenship. Now, in Lebanon, it's interesting because you don't have this history. And like I mentioned, it's primarily domestic labor. And my sense of it is that the kafala system is actually transported from the Gulf because you have a very large number of Lebanese workers that during the Civil War leave, go to the Gulf, are making money that they're sending back. So Lebanon remains a very, very high remittance-dependent economy. In the region, it's second only to Egypt in terms of the proportion of its economy that is dependent on remittances. And billions of dollars of that come from Saudi Arabia and from the Gulf. So there is a historic connection that I think has yet to be properly flushed out. I would be really grateful if there's an economic historian out there that has done this work or might be interested in doing it. Um, John Chalcraft's work on Syrian workers is the closest parallel and I think you know is really solid. And he says a second point where he makes the argument that the mass expulsion of Syrian workers from Christian areas of Lebanon during the civil war is the largest pull factor for Asian labor. That happens after the civil war. So in terms of the direction that I'm taking the project, um, I'm really inspired by the work that's happening under the, the rubric of racial capitalism in the US context primarily, because I'm trying to think through how do we understand race in the Middle East, number one, as the broadest question. But number two, although I see clear processes of racialization in place in Lebanon and in the treatment of domestic workers, um, how do we draw a genealogy for this? Do we draw it through, for example, Ottoman slavery, which is one direction that people suggest? Do we draw it through a kind of cultural transport from um, Beirut being turned towards France on the one hand, as a f Lebanon being a former French mandate, through American cultural production that, you know, Hollywood, etc. There are many lines that can be drawn, but for me, the one that's most important, I think, is this question of racial capitalism, because Beirut as a financial center and as a you know the joke on the streets of Lebanon sometimes people would say Lebanon is run by banks and NGOs and the incredible power of finance capital in that region is for me an entry point in trying to think through how with the entry of capitalism and with the specific and the economic specificities of capitalist social relations. So for example, Lebanon is not a country that experimented with state socialism or you know, with uh, those kinds of um, 
state economic experiments that other countries in the region did at a certain time in its history. And so I think there is an argument to be made about the racialized logics that come with capitalist social formations that I would really like to try and think through more in relationship to scholars that are doing economic history in Lebanon. Well, Sumaya, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Also, I want our listeners to know that if they'd like to take a look at Sumaya's dissertation, it is available. And it is also very vividly written. If you want to know more about Bangladeshi grocery stores and Palestinian refugee camps, Ethiopian domestic workers marrying Sudanese refugees and Filipino women inviting Syrian construction workers to join them for karaoke, it's all there. And we're also very excited to see where Sumaya's work goes in the future because of the rich perspective it offers on questions of labor, gender, kinship, and race in the Middle East. Thank you so much, Sumaya, for coming on the podcast. Thank you guys so much. A reminder to our listeners, uh, we'll have a bibliography up uh, on the website with relevant works. Uh, we also encourage you to join us on Facebook, where we have a community of over 25,000 listeners. <laughs> <laughs>